Amen. You may be seated, and if you have your Bible, I would ask that you would open with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament, we're going to be in chapter 21, or at least we're going to start in chapter 21. Now, um, how many of you have ever been on an airplane? You've traveled on an airplane somewhere. It doesn't matter how long you were on that plane or, or um, how long ago it was. Now, uh, I have traveled uh, not a ton, but enough uh, to know uh, that flying on a plane is not my favorite. Uh, it's, it's something that will get me to where I need to go quickly. Uh, it's just not something that I uh, enjoy. But it seems that no matter how many times I fly, uh, something always happens. Every time I get on a plane, something always happens. And a word that causes big issues for most of those times is a word that you're probably familiar with, and it's the word turbulence. How many of you have ever experienced turbulence on an airplane? Okay, a good number of you. Now, um, turbulence begins to happen in, in what happens on that plane. The seatbelt sign comes on, you hear a ding, uh, the flight attendant will come by and make sure that you're actually following the instructions for safety protocols. Now, I've read enough to know that for the most part, turbulence is not really a big deal, but in the moment, it sure feels like it's a big deal. I mean, there's nothing like feeling uncertain at 30,000 feet in the air, amen? Like anybody else ever feel like that? Uh, There have been some extreme cases of turbulence in plane trips that I have been on where I have had these thoughts that I'm going to end up like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway and I'm going to become friends with a volleyball and I have to name him Wilson. That's how it's felt to me. Now, a while back, uh, while we were still living in Florida, I was on my way home from Indianapolis, flying back to Tampa. I was away at a conference, and I had the window seat uh, in the plane. I I like to be able to look out the window while I'm flying. And um, this mom and this this eight- or nine-year-old girl come onto the plane super, super late, and they were looking for a seat to sit down. Now, I had the, I had the window seat, and then there was a, a gentleman sitting uh, in the aisle seat, and there was an open seat in the center. And this young girl catches my eye, and she says to her mother, in almost like a, a rather matter-of-fact tone, I'm going to sit right there. Uh, of course, in between me and, and another um, bigger guy. And, and so the mother looks at me and looks at the other guy and, and she says, is that okay? And, and I respond, well, I could move so you guys could sit together. And they both at the exact same time were like, no, 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 it's okay. And so this girl climbs in and she sits down next to me on this plane. And, um, the plane takes off, and, and as we uh, get to our cruising altitude, she busts open a book, puts on uh, her earbuds, and begins to listen to music and begins to read. And about 45 minutes into this trip, we began to hit uh, some pretty bad turbulence. And then the first um, bit of turbulence, she closed her book, and she put it in the little pocket on the seat in front of her. And then the plane dips again, and she pulls her headphones out. And then we took a really big dip about 30 seconds later. 
And as soon as that plane began to shake, she suddenly reached over and with both of her arms, she grasped onto my arm and held as tightly as she could and then planted her face in my arm, between my arm and the seat. And as soon as the turbulence subsided, she lets go of my arm, puts her headphones back in, picks her book back up and just starts reading. She never said anything to me. Nothing at all. She actually didn't even know who I was. She didn't even know my name. But this little girl's reaction is a picture of how most of us react when turbulent times strike our lives. We close our eyes. We we grab a hold of whoever or, or whatever we can and we sort of just ride it out. I mean, no one... I mean, if we're honest, nobody really likes turbulence. But it's in the the troublesome times that we have to learn to trust the God who controls our life. In our text today, we're going to see that the turbulent times really awaited Paul. Not just in one chapter, not just in two, but in three separate chapters Turbulent times awaited him, and at times they were so extreme, and yet, as Paul said last week when we looked at he said, none of those things move me. But we're going to see today, and in the last couple of weeks of this series, that Paul did not allow the uncertainty of the future, the, the turbulent times, so to speak, he never allowed them to derail his faith. He never allowed them to stop him from being faithful to what God has called him to. And so there are three chapters that we are going to look at this morning. And this whole section begins really a shift in the book of Acts. A final turning point for Paul here as he ultimately ends up in Rome And these final chapters of the book of Acts, these last seven chapters or so, are going to help us gain a better understanding of the mission of the church and why you and I need to continue on because the mission is still unfinished. And so the overarching theme for us today, the overarching theme in this sermon and through these three chapters is that turbulent times are ahead. Turbulent times are ahead, church. We know from Scripture that things are not going to get better in this world. They're going to get worse. And so turbulent times are truly ahead, and they were in the text. It was a certainty. And so that poses a question for each one of us this morning. What do we do when we know that turbulent times are ahead? What is the reaction to those turbulent times in the midst of them. So if you would look with me at Acts chapter 21, we're going to pick up in verse number 7. And it says, And when they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. In verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands 
And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people were urged, or there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And this is the first section that we're going to stop at. And I want us to see how we react or respond in the midst of turbulent times. Three things I'm going to give you. Three responses or actions that every person must take in the midst of turbulent times. And the first reaction or response is that we must surrender to God's will. We must surrender to God's will. Now this was not Paul's first warning that trouble was going to come. In fact, he mentioned last week that he knew what was waiting for him when he got to Jerusalem. Now, this warning, however, was probably the most pointed and most public warning that Paul had ever received. And what was Paul, what were the others really, what were they to make of this warning? I mean, look how they responded. Luke is writing this letter and he's saying, myself and the others, we're pleading with Paul. We're saying, Paul, don't go. It's too dangerous. Now, there's a lot of debate. And for those of you uh, Bible scholars in here, if you were to read commentary about this chapter uh, or portion of Scripture, there's a ton of debate and disagreements by so many authors and so many commentators and so many writers as to whether Paul was being hard-headed and stubborn here in the text. It was if uh, people thought Paul was going against the wise counsel that was sitting before him. And he was just pushing his own way to get through. And while you and I cannot accurately determine the answer to those discussions or those debates, this is what we do know from the text. While Paul was warned what was awaited, awaiting him, Paul was never told, do not go. Never, not one time did anyone say, you're not allowed to go, Paul. There's a lot of teaching and there's a lot of preaching on the will of God. And I have come to realize uh, all of my years in ministry that some of that teaching and preaching is helpful and some of it's not. It's just not helpful. And so you may be sitting in here this morning and you may be asking yourself, well, how can I determine the will of God in my life in the midst of a difficult situation or in the midst of distress or chaos? How do I know? Well, I'm going to give you four ways that you can know the will of God. And they're not going to be ways that you're all going to like, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. And so the first way uh, that we know or how do we determine the will of, God's, uh, the will of God in our life is that God's will is not determined by your emotions. And all God's people said, right? Oh man, do our emotions mess with us. Would you agree with that? Do you look at Paul? Did you see what he said in the text? Paul said, stop, why are you weeping? Why are you breaking my heart? I mean, God's will, church, Christian in here is not rooted in your feelings, And that's often something that we don't want to think about or hear or talk about. Our feelings will lead us to come to the wrong conclusions. 
It it leads us to make wrong assumptions. They lead us to jump and walk in paths that we were never meant to jump towards or walk in. And I say all of that to also tell you that emotions are a part of the process. Well, pastor, did you just contradict yourself? Absolutely not. God gave you emotions so that you would know how to feel and express things, but he gave you those emotions never with the the promise that you should take direction from them. To have them, but to never be led by them. Church, you and I can never and should never interpret God's will with what I call crystal ball theology. The good news for you and I this morning is that there is something way better than our emotions. There's something way better than a crystal ball to tell us what to do and what direction to go, which leads me to the second way to determine God's will, and that's God's will is discovered in God's word. God's will is discovered in God's word. So I started counseling and became a certified biblical counselor about eight years ago, or pretty close to eight years ago. And over the course of that eight years of counseling people, I've come to this conclusion that people have a tendency to say the phrase that I'm looking for the will of God or I'm seeking the will of God in my life. It's a phrase that is used probably more uh, than the phrase, I don't know why I do stupid things. Those are up there with probably the most said statements that I hear from people in counseling. And I hear this phrase and every time I hear it, I often think, well, where are you looking for it? Or what are you going to do with it when you find it? I mean, Because if you want to know God's will, you have to first saturate yourself with God's word. You have to. I mean, God has given us his word and he's giving us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And Paul himself wrote to the church at Rome in, in Romans chapter 12 and he tells us that we have to renew our mind with the word of God so that we can understand and accept the perfect will of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, John himself Probably one of the closest people to Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit is given to us to remind us of all of the truths that we find in Scripture. And he also tells us that the Holy Spirit guides us in all of those truths. And yet oftentimes we neglect this book. We neglect it. And as I have said in here many times before, we live in a microwave mentality society. We want to press the button and have it here in 30 seconds. We want to log on to godsword.com like Amazon and pray for peace and patience and, and goodness and faithfulness and then it's going to be shipped to our door in 48 hours or less because we asked for it. And we get angry when we picked up the word of God and we read it for two days and nothing happened. You want to know why we get frustrated and angry? Because God's will is something that you obey. And we're all rebellious. God's will is something that you obey. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I have come to learn that God's will sometimes brings you pain in this life. 
I've learned that God's will sometimes brings problem into your life, whether it's a situation or a person. I've also come to realize that God's will will sometimes bring you persecution. Our our obedience in this life can never be predicated on how it will benefit our plan. Obeying the will of God is an act of surrender. God's will can never be about you. It's about what God wants. How many of you in here know a man by the name of Richard Baxter? Nobody. Great. That's so good. Richard Baxter was... uh, what we would call the nonconformist leader of the Protestant church, exiled by the Church of England because he would not follow uh, the, the Pope's leadership in his day and age. He was an author and a theologian and a pastor, one that was excommunicated and exiled because he went against the leaders of the church. Richard Baxter used to pray every morning before he stepped foot outside of his door, Lord, what you will, where you will, and when you will. Every morning, it was a prayer that he believed that all Christians should follow, not saying verbatim, but a prayer that said, God, I'm here to surrender and obey to whatever it is that you have for me, however that looks. And that leads me to the last piece of how to determine God's will in difficult situations, the piece that uh, people like me uh, struggle with, God's will does not include all the details. I'm a detail-oriented guy, and I want to know how we're accomplishing the task and the plan that's laid out before us, and I want to know a step-by-step plan of how it's going to happen, and we need to have four other plans in case these other plans fall through. God's will never includes for you and I all the details. We have a tendency to want to know the future and how it's all going to turn out. But church, let me just tell you this. If you knew the end of God's will, if you knew exactly how it was going to play out, that would be the same thing that you choose because you knew all the facts. In the text, Paul displayed such great courage in the midst of turbulent times because he carried out God's will and what God had called him to do. I mean, things were not going to get any easier. In fact, in many respects, they got harder for Paul and I believe even more harmful and hurtful in the next couple of chapters. So I want you to pick up now in verse number 15. I want you to see what happens. So after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And when they had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he relayed, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now listen, because the attitude in action is going to change. They glorified God in one breath. But then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands were among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all jealous for the law, or zealous, sorry, for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, 
telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their head. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. In verse 27, when the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people of the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all of the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. I want you to stop right there. The second thing that we must do in the midst of turbulent times, is stay humble despite your circumstances. Stay humble. We have to surrender to the will of God, and we have to stay humble despite our circumstances. As you follow the text here, and you were to finish out this chapter, things are going well for Paul until he starts talking to the leaders of the church. And then all of a sudden, there's this issue, and it no doubt caught Paul off guard. Some of the elders thought Paul was off base on his teaching concerning the Jewish laws and how it affected those people that were in the church. Legalists were at large and were still struggling with the issue of Gentile believers. Still, uh, like chapters and chapters later, we're still dealing with this issue of Gentile believers. And so in this, this strange twist of events here in the text... Paul, at considerable cost, takes a vow to to sort of prove himself that he is not perverting the the church or even the Jewish beliefs. And the point here is that Paul is in a precarious position. Extremely. What should Paul do? I mean, what do you and I do when a similar situation arises? Or when we feel that whatever we're going to do is going to make someone upset? Have you ever been in that place? Someone is going to feel hurt if we do this. Or if we do this, this person is going to feel hurt. And sometimes we we get into this place where we feel like, well, I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it. And both sides can be upset because at least I'm happy at the end of it. But Paul does something that most of us wouldn't do. He submits to the request to take this vow. He realized what most of us need to realize. And that's that submission is a mark of spirituality. Submission is a mark of spirituality. And one of the greatest tests 
of your Christianity is your willingness to submit. Your willingness to submit. To, to yield yourself to the will of another. Uh, whether that's in marriage or in your workplace or to someone who's in a position of spiritual authority or, or otherwise. Our culture screams for our own rights. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. We push other people aside in this culture. Uh, the self-centered life is always in a battle for the top position of everything. It's all about me. It's all about my. It's all about what I can get. And for the Christian today, the idea of heart submission before head submission is vital. It's vital because our head will say, I don't want to submit to them. They don't deserve it. And in the end, we end up missing the point. Because Jesus does deserve your submission, Christian. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if you have asked the Lord to rescue and save you and become the Lord of your life, he deserves your submission. He does. And that's submission to everything in his word, not just the pieces that we want to submit to. You know, if you're the, the kind of person that has to understand everything, that Jesus has said in order to obey him, then you're going to have a very difficult Christian journey. Very difficult. The Christian life is not lived on ex explanations. We, we live by faith. And that faith allows us to trust and obey in the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. And if we truly understood scripture you can't turn a page without seeing that Jesus was the ultimate display of humility through willful submission. And Paul himself told us that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly gave up his position in heaven in order to come here as a servant to die the most horrible and crucial death on the cross. And so to submit is to follow the example of Christ. And for you note takers in here, for you, you gold star students, I want you to write this down, that until you're fully committed to following Christ and yielding to him, submission will always feel more like a curse than a call to cheerful obedience. Always. I would love nothing more than to be able to stand up here this morning and tell you that every single situation in your life is going to work out the way that you want it to. Uh, I wish that I could stand up here and say that to you, but the truth is, is that turbulent times will always continue. There's always going to be something that we have to walk through, something that will be used to sanctify us. My mentor used to say to me, you're either in the midst of a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're getting prepared for one. And he used to say it to me over and over and over again. He would call me up, 
Josh, how are things going in ministry? How's church? How are your people? And be like, man, Wes, things are going great. Man, people are, you know, we're seeing this. We had baptisms. We had these three young people get saved at youth group. Just all these great things. And he's like, all right, just wait. And I was like, man, Wes, you're supposed to be an encouragement to me. And just wait, Josh. Just wait. The storm is coming. The storm is coming. And don't get caught off guard. Don't get caught off guard. The storm is coming. Man, can we just stop for a moment and just imagine how Paul must be feeling in this moment in Scripture? These are his people. Ah, Paul is in the temple finishing off, fulfilling this vow, and another uproar starts, and it reaches the ears of the authority. And they, they pull Paul out of the temple, and they begin to beat Paul to death. And somehow, in the midst of being beaten, Paul just remains humble and submissive despite every single thing that is happening to him. And then if you finish out this chapter, you come to realize that the authorities finally stop the beating from happening. And Paul gets up and they're getting ready to take him away. And Paul goes, can I talk to them? I want to talk to the people who were just beating me. I want to tell them a story. I want to share with them about this God that has changed my life. And you jump in to chapter 22 and Paul begins to give his testimony. He begins to tell people that he loves so much that he's willing to take whatever they do to him so that they can know Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he do it? Because the, the physical pain that Paul experienced was overshadowed by the spiritual pain that was in Paul's heart for those who didn't know Christ. He endured the beatings because he wanted people's souls to be in eternity with God. And the sad reality this morning is that most of us probably quit way before this happened. Most of us would have probably attempted to determine in our lives that this is no longer God's will for me to keep getting beaten. People questioned Paul's passion. And I don't know what you've experienced, but I have come to realize that any time that you attempt to do anything for Christ, you're always going to end up getting some level of criticism. Always. In some way, shape, or form, you're going to be criticized. In fact, the only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing. To do nothing at all. How many of you in here uh, know a man by the name of D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody was uh, probably one of the greatest influential Christian leaders here in America outside of maybe Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield. Uh, D.L. Moody um, was heavily criticized for how he did ministry. Um, people criticized the way that he attempted to reach what they called the street kids in Chicago. 
The kids that were often orphaned or had a single parent lived in very horrible situations. And he was questioned every single time he attempted to reach these children. His methods were always questioned by church leaders. Always. One day, a man begins to argue with D.L. Moody about his methods to reach kids. And D.L. listened to the argument, and then when he was done, he humbly responded, I like what I'm doing far better than what you're not. And so Christian, what would it take you to quit? What would it take you to quit following Jesus? And better yet, on the other side of that, what does it take you to criticize someone Who's serving Jesus? What does it take? I mean, because too many Christians are way too concerned about issues that will not matter for all of eternity. People quit participating in churches over the silliest of things. And I say this with all of the care and love and respect that I can. Christian criticism is not a gift of the Spirit. Criticism is not a gift of the Spirit, nor is it a fruit of the Spirit either. The reason that you and I tend to criticize, because we've all been there, right? Every single one of us has been in that place. We have a tendency to to criticize and, and pick apart other people because instead of having an attitude of submission, we always lean towards having an attitude of superiority. And that's the very attitude that Christ did not have. Christ was a servant. He was submissive. He was humble. And you know, church, we see Paul modeling that every turn of Scripture where Paul is writing. He models it. And as you press all the way through chapter 22, Paul shares his testimony. And as he shares, he just continues to infuriate people because he's talking about God and what he's done. And then we come to chapter 22, and I want you to turn there with me. I want you to jump all the way to verse 22. I want you to see what happens. It says that up to this word, they listened to him, or they listened to Paul. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went into the tribune and he said to them, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And if you read through the rest of this chapter and you get to chapter 23, Paul begins now to address, he's taken before the Sanhedrin, the the spiritual leaders and the ruling religious leaders really of that day and age. And he starts speaking and the high priest says, smack him in the face, hit him, hit Paul. 
And Paul instantly snaps back. And in a moment of weakness, he says something back to the religious leader, the spiritual leader. And then Paul realizes and recognizes that he's talking to the high priest and he then apologizes for snapping back. He apologized for what he said and then he realizes that the room is divided amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling leaders. He, he speaks and no doubt he's hoping that he can make his point about the gospel but there is no avail, none whatsoever. And theologians and and commentators have all written and believe and agree that this was the worst day of Paul's life. This one moment in the text, the worst day of his life. I mean, church, this this is beyond uh, a bad week. Paul's been beaten, he's been betrayed, he's been threatened, called for death, mocked, mistreated, completely misunderstood, all in the same day. On your bad days and in the worst of times, what do you do? What do you do? Who do you even turn to? When the turbulence is is such that you think this is it, I'm done. I have nothing left in me to move on. I have nowhere else to go. Who do you cling to? Who do you cling to? Because in chapter 23, we see who Paul clings to. We see it. I want you to jump with me to chapter 23. I want you to see this. Verse 11, it says that the following night, the Lord stood by him. And he said to him, take courage. For you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so the third thing that you and I need to do in the midst of our turbulent times is to seek comfort from the Lord. Surrender to his will. Surrender all the way. Now we have to seek his comfort. You know, most of you in here know all of the the struggles that uh, my family and I have had to walk through the last two years. Um, And I'm going to try to get through this without breaking down. You guys have seen and and witnessed the, the pain and the agony of physical health issues and problems. You've seen the issues and and struggles that have occurred here in the early days of uh, my tenure here as the pastor. And I came to this verse about three weeks ago when I was reading and studying and preparing for this message. And I was just kind of hit. Just kind of hit, right? So I I love the book in the Bible that is my namesake, right? Everyone loves like, my, hey, my parents named me after Joshua in the Bible. And I love in there that God tells Joshua, be of good cheer, do not be dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, go with you wherever it is that you go. And I've always clung to that verse and I came across this. And I've read through the book of Acts, I don't even know how many times. And I never caught this one single 
verse. Take courage, Christian. Take courage. And in that moment, I came to this place where I was so very glad to come across this Bible verse because Jesus is standing with Paul saying, be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer. You've done exactly as I have asked you, be of good cheer. I'm, I'm right here with you. And I had to ask myself, and I'm now asking you, do you believe that Jesus is that close to you? Do you believe it? Because we look at this and we often say, Jesus never spoke to me like that in my darkest days. But Jesus gave you his spirit. Christian, Jesus gave you his spirit. He's not standing next to you. Jesus is inside of you. And Jesus dwelling inside of you is far better than Jesus standing next to you. You have his very presence inside of you continually. Continually he is there. There's not a ton of theology in this one single verse. There's not. Jesus is just saying, cheer up, Paul, because I'm here. Cheer up. It's the exact same thing that he said to his disciples in the boat when they were afraid. When he said, it's, it's me. It's Jesus. I'm here. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what you're walking through, but Jesus comes to the cell. Jesus comes to the boat. He comes into your life and he reminds you, cheer up. I'm right here. Cheer up. Do you know this morning that Jesus cares for you? Do you know it? I love... I love Peter in the Bible because Peter, I have often found myself resonating more with Peter's stupidity in his mouth, um, not thinking before he says something and regrets it. In fact, we were just having a conversation with a group of people yesterday about Peter's actions and, and in, in his actions, uh, he becomes so frustrated that he just cuts somebody's ear off uh, right in the midst of Jesus. And in all of Peter's chaos, Peter tells the believer that we can cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. Because he cares for us. And that, that, that word or that phrase, take courage, or in some versions, be, be of good cheer, means don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's a reminder to every single one of us who is faithfully serving him that he is with you. That he's with you. That his presence is, is right there. And if you're here this morning and you want to throw the towel in, don't. Don't throw the towel in. 
Paul said when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, blessed be the God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our tribulation so that we might comfort others with the same comfort that we have received. Jesus hung on a cross for you, church. He rose from the dead for you to give you hope so that when turbulent times come, we can cling to him. That we can cling to him and give comfort to other people who are walking through turbulent times. And so, in closing, if you're a note taker, I want you to write down, courage is, is to keep going through turbulent times and it's found when we cling to Christ. Do you know that little girl on the plane? The story I shared at the very beginning of the sermon? Do you know why that little girl on the plane grabbed me and and clung to me? Because she wanted to know that she would be safe. She wanted to cling to someone that was bigger than her. So who are you clinging to today? Who are you clinging to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon your word this morning, we acknowledge that that there is certainty of of turbulent times, maybe that we're walking through now, but in, in the future. And it seems as though that we often find ourselves in the midst of situations that are beyond our control. And so today, Lord, I ask that we would be reminded that true stability is found when we surrender to your will. When we look to you, when we seek comfort from you. And so help us, God, to seek your will, not through the lens of our emotions, but through the light of your word. Give us strength, Lord, to trust in your sovereign plan, even when the path seems unclear to us. And as we, as we study the Bible in our personal lives, as we, as we gather here on Sundays and Wednesdays, God, I pray that you would teach us the beauty of heart submission before head submission. That we follow the example of your son who submitted himself to the point of death on the cross for us. And may we be reminded that you are an ever-present source of strength. Just as, as Jesus stood with Paul in his darkest of hours, remind us, God, that you are so close. That you offer courage, that you give comfort and peace. And I just ask in closing, Lord, that you would give us boldness to face our turbulent times. That we wouldn't do it in in our own fleshly and weak strength, but by clinging to you. May our trust be deepened, God, as, as, as we are in the midst of uncertainty. And may our lives be a testament to your sustaining grace that our marriages with our kids 
God, we love you. And we praise you this morning for all that you do, all the blessings that you give. And we pray and ask all of these things in the mighty and precious and sweet name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.